They're going to live a certain way. We are not, we are not forgiven by God, uh, by our good deeds, by any way, by any stretch of the imagination. Our good deeds play no part in God forgiving us. What Jesus did and Jesus did alone, that is why we are forgiven. But those who are forgiven, and this means you, if you are trusting in Jesus and have been forgiven and are a Christian, you will want to live and you will strive to live a certain way as a disciple of Christ. And another way of describing being a disciple of Christ, which all Christians must be and will be, is another way of saying that is being covenantally faithful. We are not saved uh, and forgiven by our covenant faithfulness. But those who are saved and forgiven through trust in Christ will be and strive to be covenantally faithful, even though we will regularly, indeed almost always, fail at that to some degree. This text is about covenant faithfulness by a man named Jehoshaphat, who was a king in Judah. And and the blessings that came to Jehoshaphat and to his kingdom because he, the king in particular, was covenantally faithful, was a good disciple of, yes, of Christ, even though Christ hadn't been born yet. And so we're going to look at this covenant faithfulness of this great king of Israel who lived, um, well, almost 3,000 years ago. Not quite. I think about 2,800 now that I'm 2,700 years ago. But a long, long, long time ago. But what happened to him is very relevant to you and me, as I hope you'll see as we work our way through this text. We have been looking at, uh, because the chronicler himself uh, has been doing this, looking at uh, the reigns of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Judah is not dealt with um, in uh, the Chronicles, the writer of the kings and the kings, the first and second kings, do in fact deal not only with the kings of Judah, but also with the kings of Israel. But the chronicler is not really interested in the kings of Israel, of the northern kingdom of Israel. He is, his interest is in the line of David, the descendants of David. In other words, the messianic, uh, kings. Uh, who were anointed of God, who were types of Christ because they were descendants of David ruling over uh, the people of God in the Old Testament age. Jehoshaphat, the king who we are looking at uh, today in this passage that is in Second uh, Chronicles 17, he was the son of Asa, we looked at uh, last time we were together. He was the grandson of Abijah, he was the great-grandson of Rehoboam. He was the great-great-grandson of Solomon. And he was the great-great-great-grandson of King David. I'm not going to keep doing this, by the way, because after a while, I'll, I'll take too much time. But I want you to know Jehoshaphat was the great-great-great, three-greats-grandson of King David. Um, and we'll talk more about David here in just a moment. In fact, we're about to do it right now. First, the two points uh, that uh, distill, I think, what uh, this passage uh, is addressing and teaching us. The first point, Jehoshaphat exhibits covenant faithfulness early on in his reign. 
And this doesn't imply necessarily that he didn't exhibit it later in his reign, but this portion that we're looking at here deals with the early portion of his reign, and therefore I say uh, uh, Joseph uh, Jehoshaphat exhibits covenant faithfulness early on in his reign. But secondly, this text uh, teaches that Jehoshaphat, or shows us Jehoshaphat experiencing covenant, covenant blessings early on in his reign. That's the second point. So Jehoshaphat exhibits covenant faithfulness, and he experiences covenant blessings early on in his reign. So first, his experience of, or exhibiting rather, of covenant faithfulness, being a good disciple of the Lord, shall we say, as I mentioned to you children a little while ago. Um, the first thing, uh, way in which this covenant faithfulness is described is in verse 3. So he says there in verse 3, uh, the chronicler does, and the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. I'm going to read, by the way, the way the New American Standard writes this. I didn't when I read a moment ago the text, but I am now. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days and did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, who was Asa, there in verse 4. I'll stop reading there for a moment. So it says that he walked in the ways of his father. The Hebrew word here, av, uh, can mean and often does mean father, like immediate father, biological father, but it regularly also means ancestor, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Uh, it can mean either. Uh, and so the New American Standard translate, translates it father here. Um, and it says, Jehoshaphat walked in the ways of his father slash ancestor. Now, this could, in fact, be a reference to King David. I read the New American Standard, and the New American Standard uh, does include David's name in verse 3. David, of course, along with Solomon, was regarded by the chronicler as uh, Israel's among Israel's most ideal kings. Those two kings were considered the ideals, even though, of course, they were both very flawed men. But the chronicler tends to minimize their flaws in order to point to their Christ-like nature as ideal kings of Israel. And uh, this ancestor, or this father that is referenced here in verse 3, that Jehoshaphat is being compared to, could in fact be David, uh, like I say, who is Israel's most ideal king. Now, if indeed... The chronicler is comparing Jehoshaphat to David. Uh, our author is probably referring to the godly manner in which David, uh, in which David behaved prior to his adulterous liaison with Bathsheba and subsequent murder of her husband Uriah. That wasn't exactly an impressive part of his life. But prior to that point in time, he was quite the godly man and pretty cons- quite consistently godly. Um, and he became godly after he repented, of course, but there was that uh, very ugly period. And so, if David is in view here, if he is the father who the chronicler has in mind, he's referring to that period probably prior to the Bathsheba-Uriah episode. But, a textual variant in the Hebrew manuscripts um, may indicate uh, that what the chronicler originally wrote in Hebrew uh, omits the name of the, the, the certain textual variants omit the name of David. Okay? 
the ones that the New American Standard are following, they include the name of David, but a number of manuscripts do not mention David's name. They just say uh, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father's earlier days. And if this textual variant that uh, omits the name of David does reflect the writer's original text that he wrote, that means that the chronicler is, uh, was originally referring to Jehoshaphat's immediate father, who was Asa. And there are some reasons to think that uh, the chronicler was indeed, and the Holy Spirit was indeed, making a comparison with Asa rather than David, reasons I won't bother to get into because it'll bore you and it's not relevant to making the points of the text. But just know that. Now, that's why I didn't read it when I read it to you. Um, regardless of which ancestor uh, the chronicler and the Holy Spirit were originally referring to, both men uh, spent much of their life living in a manner that bespoke a deep love for and commitment to the God of Israel, uh, Yahweh. And this was also the kind of life that Jehoshaphat lived uh, in his early days, but we know from later uh, uh, revelation that we'll get to, uh, Lord willing, in subsequent weeks, that he much of his life was lived uh, in obedience to God, and uh, uh, he was uh, quite consistent throughout his life as a servant of the Lord, not just in his early years, but here we're just dealing with the early years. And uh, so he lived a godly, a pious life, if you will. And uh, it's clear that he was among the most devout of Israel's, I should say Judah's, Israel and Judah's kings, along with David and uh, Solomon. And Josiah could be added to that list as well. So he walked in the ways of his father. One example of how he was covenantally faithful. Another example was the fact that he, uh, or a point that was make, making the same point, is that he did not seek the Baals. We read there also in verse the end of verse 3. It is possible that the chronicler is referring to the syncretistic worship uh, of Yahweh, of the Lord, that Jeroboam, uh, the first... Uh, uh, king of the northern kingdom instituted at Bethel and Dan using calves. Uh, those calves, of course, were supposed to be mean, uh, to be used for the worship, ostensibly, of Yahweh, so they didn't have to go down to Jerusalem, which was in Judah. And he didn't, the king didn't, or Jeroboam didn't want them going down there, so he said, you can worship the Lord here at Bethel and Dan. So it was supposed to be worship of Yahweh, but of course uh, it wasn't. It was not at all pleasing. In fact, it was highly offensive to the Lord. This may be a reference to those calves at Bethel and Dan, but it is more likely that the chronicler and the Holy Spirit, speaking through him, is referring to the then-flourishing cult of Baal that Ahab and Jezebel had recently introduced in the northern kingdom of Israel, spoken of in 1 Kings chapter 16 verses 29 and following. That's probably the Baal that the chronicler is referring to, or the Baals that the chronicler is referring to here. So Jehoshaphat didn't do that, as many other of Judah's kings did, uh, subsequent kings did. He did not do that. He had no other gods before Yahweh. Of course, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of this text, and he includes this observation that Jehoshaphat served no other gods 
including the Baals, or like the Baals, he includes this observation here in Holy Scripture to prompt us, the reader, um, to search our own hearts, to ask the question of ourselves, do we have any other gods before him, before the Lord? And of course, gods do not have to be made of stone or gold to be idols in our lives. We've talked about that many a time. Your job can be an idol. Your children can be an idol. Um, your entertainments can be an idol. Um, your food can be an idol. Drink, etc., 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 etc. Your ego is almost always the uh, most basic of the idols that we would tend to serve. Do you have idols in your lives right now? Do you have an idol today in your life? that you know is interfering with your relationship with God. It's sin. And God says, walk away from that idol. Do not seek the bales in your life any longer. Jehoshaphat did not. Rather than seeking the bales, the text tells us in verse 4 that he sought the God of his father, and here the father is a reference to, not to, as the previous one may, may be to David, but actually to his father, his biological father, Asa. He sought the God of Asa, who of course was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the only true God, Israel's God. The concept, by the way, of seeking uh, carries with it the connotation, uh, a connotation of intensity. When you seek in scripture, uh, it's with intensity or not seeking. It's with a sense of uh, urgency or commitment to the task at hand of finding God, if you will, as opposed to a casual or nonchalant uh, semi-interest in him, which is no interest at all. Uh, he, Jehoshaphat, sought the Lord in this way. He was constantly and earnestly in pursuit of the Lord. This undoubtedly meant that he, as an Old Testament saint, frequently spent time worshiping the Lord at his temple in Jerusalem, which was just down the way from his palace. In fact, I think the palace was right, uh, at certain points in Israel's uh, history, the palace, the royal palace, was right on the edge of the Temple Mount uh, so that he could walk right into the uh, courtyard of the temples. Or of the temple, rather. Um, not sure if that was true in Josephus' day, but the point was he was regularly at the temple. Why? Because um, that's where the Lord was to be sought and found in the Old Testament age. Jehoshaphat was undoubtedly a regular um, um, worshiper at the temple. And it is also undoubtedly means his seeking the Lord meant that he frequently sought communion with God in private prayer. Uh, and in the study of the scriptures themselves, the scriptures that were available to him in his day. By the way, this is exactly what Israel kings, Israel's kings were required to do by God, but often didn't do. Uh, this, uh, back in the Mosaic legislation that was given before the, uh, Israelites came into the land, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it speaks of how there will be a kingship. Uh, uh, there will be kings in Israel. And there were laws that were given by Moses as to how the king was to act. By the way, 
God was never opposed to a king being in Israel. That was never the problem. Some people say, well, you know, they, uh, they weren't supposed to have kings. They were supposed to have God as their king. That's true, they were supposed to have God as their king, but that didn't mean they weren't supposed to have human kings that were under the great king. The problem was they wanted a king like the nations, who was a military leader, who was uh, kind of the uh, almost deified in the eyes of the people uh, who he uh, presided over. That was the problem, that Israel wanted a king like unto the nations. Not that they wanted a king. At any rate, the legislation here we read in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 regarding then future kings, which would apply in De- uh, uh, Jose, uh, excuse me, Jehoshaphat's day, starting in verse 18. And now it shall come about when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not, uh, may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that, and that he may, uh, may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. That's how the Jewish kings of old were supposed to act. They were supposed to be in God's word. They were supposed to be students of God's word. And you and I are to be as well. That doesn't just apply to me or to the elders or to the fathers in our midst. It applies to you children. It applies to you ladies and you teenagers. We are all to be about seeking the Lord through the means of grace that he has provided and appointed for us in the New Testament age. We no longer go to a temple. We no longer offer sacrifices. We have the word read and preached, the sacraments and prayer as the principal means of grace. And I would add to that uh, observing the Lord's Day. And we are to seek the Lord in those appointed ways and do so diligently, not half-heartedly, not as something that's on a checklist that we have to go through the motions because, well, we're supposed to, that's what a good Christian does. That is a wrong way to um, seek God. We should desire God. And we should, when we don't, and frankly, we don't sometimes, right? We should say, Lord, give me a desire for you. Cause me to want you earnestly, to seek you with, uh, with my whole heart rather than half-heartedly as right now I'm, I'm, I'm doing. How regularly, how intensely are you pursuing the Lord in your life? Is there room for improvement? Jehoshaphat also, also was covenantally faithful in that he followed the Lord's commands. Again, in verse 4 of our text, it says this, uh, but he sought the God of his father following his commandments and did not act as Israel did, meaning the north and its kings. Uh, Jehoshaphat was intentional about keeping God's commandments. He was, it was, it was deliberate. It was, it was, um, yeah, it was deliberate. It was intentional uh, pursuit of the commandments of God and obedience to them. And he uh, habitually kept God's commandments. Not perfectly, because he was a sinner, 
saved by grace like you and I are. But he habitually, that is to say characteristically, was a covenant keeper, obedient, a good disciple of the Lord. This is what one who is truly trusting Jesus alone for his forgiveness uh, and uh, reconciliation with God is what one who is a Christian does. Is he characteristically and she characteristically obeys God's commandments? That's what you and I must and will do if we are Christians. Jehoshaphat also took, the text says, the New American Standard puts it this way, took great pride in the ways of the Lord, verse 6. And he took great pride in the ways of the Lord and again removed the high places and the Asherim from Judah. This uh, phrase here literally means in the Hebrew, uh, his heart was lifted up in the ways of Jehovah. Kind of an odd expression. Uh, his heart was lifted up in the ways of Jehovah. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it probably means, and can't be dogmatic here, but it probably means that his heart delighted in the ways of Jehovah. Which is to say, he took pleasure in the just and wise and good manner in which God governed the world uh, and the people in it. He took pleasure in God's governance of things. This is something that you and I ought to do as well, but which may some of us may find difficult to do sometime. After all, our nation, our world, but particularly our nation, seems to be getting crazier and crazier every day, doesn't it? We're running up uh, a massive national debt at breakneck speed. Um, We're increasingly showing a lack of civility and respect of others. There's widespread refusal in our country to take responsibility for one's own actions. There's the seeming triumph of the choose-your-own-gender mindset, an ideology, the devaluation of human life all around us. Things appear pretty bleak sometimes when I look at the world and look at my country. Perhaps you as well feel that way at times. Yet, the Bible teaches that God has orchestrated all of this. Paul says that God causes all things to work together according to the counsel of his will. He works all things after the counsel of his will. That's how the New American Standard puts that. So it's Ephesians 1, verse 11. All things. Not most things. Not the good things. But all things. God has orchestrated everything that we see going on in America today. Gender, gender fluidity and everything else. God has orchestrated it. So, has he blundered in his providential governance of our land and our world? Such an allegation is not only highly blasphemous, it couldn't be further from the truth. Couldn't be further from the truth. Over in Psalms, we read, Psalm 66, verses 7 through five through seven, come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. 
He turned the sea into dry land. He's speaking here now of Israel's journey across the Red Sea. He turned the sea into dry land and actually across the Jordan River. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. And then it says this, He, meaning God, rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. And then over in Psalm 67, verse 4, we read something similar. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou wilt judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. And then we read in that well-known passage that Paul wrote in Romans 8.28, For God causes all things to work together, all things to work together for good. He couldn't do that unless he was in charge of the whole kit and caboodle. He he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And also, again, in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Unsearchable are his judgments. His, and and his, the depth of his wisdom cannot be plumbed as he governs this world of ours. Including all the mayhem that we see in the world. The war in Ukraine. The North Koreans with their crazy evil dictator. Um, the uh, anarchy that increasingly we see in our cities. All these things. God is governing. He is orchestrating, even, these things. Shorter Catechism, question 11, says, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. There's no room for anything else in there or chance, or whatever you want to call it. If the, if the framers of the Shorter Catechism, Catechism are right, and they are, because what they say comports with Scripture. And like Jehoshaphat, you and I need to delight in and trust in his providential rule over our land and our world even when it seems crazy, which it does. We have to trust the Lord and rest in his wise, powerful, preserving and governing of our world. Are you doing that? I don't do it very well, by the way, just so you know. I don't practice what I preach as well as I should on this area. And as my family will attest, others as well. But I struggle with that. Maybe you do too. Jehoshaphat also was covenantally faithful in that he removed the high places in the Asherim from Judah. I already read that passage, chapter 6. These high places were places in the land of Judah uh, where people worshipped. Places other than the Jerusalem temple. As I said a few weeks back, the problem with these places was that they were places of sacrifice, of worshipful sacrifice that the Lord had not authorized for his worship to be to take place. 
but they were they were what other what man had authorized, if you will, for convenience or for whatever reason. Better scenery, who knows? Uh, no, God's people were in that day and age were to worship Him by means of sacrifice, and that sacrifice was to take place in no other place than the Jerusalem Temple. Deuteronomy twelve teaches that. Jehoshaphat knew. God disapproves of such alternate places of worship, and so he did his very best to remove them from his realm, and did so. He also removed the remaining Asherah poles. These were probably wooden representations of the Phoenician god Baal's goddess consort or companion. Of course, it was a figment of everybody's imagination, but the Phoenicians didn't think so. And so they had these Asherah poles representing her, and of course, uh, the people of Israel uh, sadly did the same all too often uh, in imitation of their neighbors. Jehoshaphat removed them. Jehoshaphat also embarked on a campaign, and this was perhaps his greatest act, if I can put it that way, although it doesn't, the text doesn't say this, but maybe of his covenantal faithfulness, and that is he embarked on a campaign of providing religious instruction to the citizens of his realm, to his own subjects. Verses 7 through 9 of our text uh, uh, says that, and I'm not going to read it again because I'm liable to botch the names again. I don't want to do that. Um, but you know the passage I'm referring to. Uh, what uh, Joshphat did was he sent royal officials, representatives of his uh, uh, of his reign, out into the land, and they were accompanied by Levites and priests, or Levitical priests, uh, more or less the same thing, and they went out to teach the people from the book of the law. Of the Lord. This is probably a reference to the Mosaic Law, the five books of Moses, uh, almost certainly, in fact. Um, and the presence of Jehoshaphat's royal officials in the land, uh, as they went out, that indicated to the people when they saw them that this effort to deepen their own understanding of God's law was being spearheaded by none other than the king himself, because his royal officials are right there. Um, showing up with the priests and the Levites accompanying them. And so this presence of the king, their king's uh, officials, uh, would probably, I think presumably, heighten their motivation to learn. Our king wants us to learn this, in addition to the fact that we should learn it anyway, uh, more about uh, the law of God and what God uh, has said to us. And so the, those officials' presence was probably helpful in that regard. But the actual teaching of the uh, law of the Lord, uh, or the book of the law of the Lord, was almost certainly done by the, least, the Levites and priests, uh, to whom God had actually given that responsibility. We won't turn to it now for the sake of time, but Deuteronomy chapter three, th- 33, rather, verses 8 and 10, makes it clear that the teachers in the land were the priests and the Levites. And so too does Leviticus 10, uh, 11 and some other texts also. So they were the teachers of the law, almost certainly, not the royal officials. But the royal officials, like I said, lent lent gravitas to the occasion. And Jehoshaphat's campaign to teach the law highlights for us, the modern-day reader, the importance of learning God's law. And law here doesn't just mean the first five books. Uh, 
the whole of Scripture is arguably the law and the gospel, both. Uh, but it is um, the Scriptures that we have, we have much more than the ancients of old did. And we are to learn this well. We are to study this and to, to dig into the Scriptures, not just speed read them. There's some value in speed reading because you get an overview, but if you're going to do speed reading, don't just do speed reading. Do both speed reading and then dig down into certain texts and chew on it, if I can put it that way, uh, and ask the Lord to give you insight, further insight and, and understanding and application of that. This is what Jehoshaphat did, undoubtedly as part of his seeking of the Lord. Well, as a consequence of these acts of faithfulness on Jehoshaphat's part, uh, covenant faithfulness towards the Lord and his covenant in his reign, God graciously blessed him. Underline the word graciously. And that's the second point, much briefer. Jehoshaphat experiences covenant blessings early on in his reign. And, and that God's blessings of him uh, were a consequence of his own fidelity shown to the Lord is evident from the passage itself that we're looking at. Looking again at verses 3 through 5. I'll reread those three verses. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. And then it says, because. He was with Jehoshaphat because he, Jehoshaphat, followed the example of his father, early, uh, father's early, earlier days and did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father following his commandments and did not act as Israel did. And then notice the first verse of verse 5. So, because he did not act as Israel did, because he sought the God of his fathers, uh, uh, and so on and so forth, so the Lord established the kingdom in his control and goes on with other blessings. He was blessed because he was striving to be faithful to his commitment to the Lord. He was striving to be a good disciple of Christ. Now, let me say this. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Uh, Any blessings that the Lord bestows on you or me or any of his people on account of our good deeds or our covenant faithfulness, any blessings that we receive on account of that uh, faithfulness on our part or trust or obedience on our part, are never earned by those deeds of ours or by that faith of ours, strictly speaking. We don't merit the blessings that God gives us, even though he is giving them to us because of our, like Jehoshaphat, covenant faithfulness that's being exhibited by us. But that's never... Um, earned, strictly speaking. Why is that? Because all, any and all of our obedience, of our faith, our trust that we exhibit is always imperfect. Only perfection merits blessing. Only, truly. Only perfection merits from God blessing. And even that's a statement that need, would need to be qualified, but we're not going to go there. My point is that uh, the bestowal of such blessings by God, as I'm going to, we're going to briefly look at here in the next few moments, uh, are always an act of grace by God, even when they are done because of our efforts to be covenantally faithful. It's always of grace. It's never, strictly speaking, meritorious. So always keep that in mind. 
So what are some of these, briefly, what are some of these covenant blessings that the Lord blessed Jehoshaphat with? Well, that he blessed, first of all, Jehoshaphat by being with him. Verse 3, and the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. This is likely referring to the fact that God fought on Judah's side, or you could say Jehoshaphat is Judah's king, fought on his side against Judah's adversaries. God was, uh, the battle is the Lord's. That kind of idea is the idea of being with the Lord being with uh, Jehoshaphat. That's probably what it's re- uh, an allusion to, that the Lord was on their side against their adversaries, enemies such as the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, whom Jehoshaphat was able to secure himself against. Verse verse 1 speaks of that. Uh, and his position over Israel, he made his position over Israel, that's the reference to the northern kingdom, almost certainly firm or strong, meaning he was secured against uh, attacks from the north. And the Lord uh, was with him in that sense, provided him protection from the wicked northern kings and their armies. Um, again, and what was the reason that God did that? was because of Jehoshaphat's emulation of his ancestor. Verse 3, because he followed the example of his father, either David or Asa, in their earlier days. So the Lord was with him. That was one of the covenant blessings, uh, militarily speaking. A second related blessing to that first one was that the dread of the Lord fell upon all the nations that surrounded Judah. We read that over in chapter in verse 12. Uh, if you go over to verse 12. Now the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands which were around Judah, so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. This was another blessing that God bestowed upon him. Um uh, the reason, of course, that the nations, uh, surrounding nations were fearful was because Yahweh fought for Jehoshaphat and Judah. And their enemies, his enemies knew that. And they were terrified of what Jehoshaphat's warrior God might do to them if they attacked. So they didn't attack. They were scared of Yahweh. Rightly so. Yet another related blessing, divine blessing, related to the first two I've just mentioned, was the great military strength with which the Lord blessed Jehoshaphat and Judah. I'm not going to read it, but it is that whole latter half of the chapter, starting in verse uh, uh, 12, reading all the way through verse 19, is essentially an elaboration by the chronicler upon the military strength that Jehoshaphat had because of God's blessing of him. That was another blessing. Fourthly, Yahweh firmly established Jehoshaphat's kingdom in his hands. Verse 5. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control, which literally means in his hand. Jehoshaphat was able to consolidate his power uh, in such a way that no potential opponent whether foreign or domestic, posed a meaningful threat to him in his reign during his years as king. And this was God's doing, that he was able to consolidate his power and have firm control over his kingdom. Another blessing from the Lord. And then finally, final um, uh, 
expression of covenantal blessing from the Lord upon this king, this godly king, was that the Lord blessed him with great riches and honor as a result of the gifts that were given to him, first of all by his subjects, verse 5 again, so the Lord established the kingdom in his control, and all Judah, his subjects, brought tribute to Jehoshaphat. And he, as a result of that tribute, had great riches and honor. But it wasn't just all of Judah that brought tribute, but the nations around, some of the nations around Judah did as well. Look at verse uh, 13. Uh, uh, No, not 13. Where's the verse? Um, Verse 11, there we go. And some of the Philistines brought gifts and silver as tribute to Jehoshaphat. The Arabians also brought him flocks, uh, uh, 7,700 rams and 7,700 male goats. So, Jehoshaphat is accumulating wealth because it's being brought to him by willing um, uh, willing folks amongst his own people, but also outside of his land as well. And wealth and honor are regularly represented in the Old Testament uh, and in the Chronicles in particular as gifts that come from God as a reward for covenant fidelity. God bless this man greatly because he strove to be faithful to the Lord. The Lord will do the same for you and me. Not necessarily with the exact same types of blessing that I've just enumerated here, but there is blessing. There is reward, if you will, for fighting the good fight nobly, earnestly, putting off what remains of sin in your life and putting on righteousness that you don't yet possess in your life. As I've said before, there's nothing wrong with using this knowledge that God will reward us as we strive to serve him faithfully. There's nothing wrong with using that knowledge as a means to motivate you to remain faithful as long as it isn't your foremost motivation. Your foremost motivation should be love for and gratitude to the triune God for what he did for you at Calvary. That's why you should serve him. The rewards are just gravy, icing on the cake, if you will. You serve a wonderful God, a generous, kind, forbearing God, if you're a Christian. He rejoices in blessing his people. He longs to. We read in um, Jeremiah, I can't remember the passage right now, 16 I want to say. Anyway. He wants to bless his people. He loves to lavish good gifts upon us as we strive to serve him well. How could you strive to, how can you serve him better this week? What can you do in your life this week to serve him more nobly, more fully than you did this past week? That's your assignment. Go do it. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that 